0: story of God, and uh, the book that we've been uh, we made available to you is, is by Dr. Carson on this particular subject, and I'm using it a little bit, glancing off of a little bit, but basically we're looking at the Bible in eight sections, and I was thinking of something that happened to me earlier on in my life, very beginning of ministry, didn't really know what I was doing at all, just starting off, kind of got thrown into this camp where I was sort of a teacher at this camp for high school kids, and uh, I was in college, and we did this thing that was really fun. We, the, the kids would come each week. We had a new set of 70 kids at this camp, and we were out in the wilderness. And we would take them down onto this riverbank, and it was a rock beach there, and we'd have them all line up in particular order, and they didn't know what they were doing, and they had in their hands these little luminarios, you know, brown pa- paper bags with candles in them, and they're all holding these bags, and they're, we, would, we would say, okay, you stand here, and, and a bunch of you in a line, and then you go over here, and they're looking around like, what's going on? What are we doing? And then we would have them put their, their we'd say, okay, everybody put your luminarios down right where you're standing. And they would put them down and say, okay, now follow us back up the hill. And we would go back up the hill, and, and, and as, as we were doing that, the others of us on the staff would light all the candles. And then they would be climbing up this steep hill, and they'd come around the corner, and they would look down on that riverbed where they had been standing, and all of a sudden, they would see all these luminarios, these candles lit, and they were in this massive, like the size of a football field, shape of a hand. But they couldn't see that when they were down low, Uh, They could only see it when they were up high and they had that perspective. And so then we would go back and we talk about how sometimes in life our perspective uh, is is skewed because we can't see what God sees. Um, But God sees it all, and so we had a kind of a talk on this. And in in a sense, it's a good analogy for what we're doing with the Bible in this series. Uh, Many of us have spent a lot of time on the ground, on the riverbed, looking at the stories in the Scripture, understanding each and every one, uh, but, but we haven't taken the time to sort of get up and see what the big perspective is, and that's what we we're doing in this series, is to put it all together so that when we look at the little stories, we'll be able to understand them within the context. Now, um, what we've done so far, if we could put up the, the first slide, um, what we've done so far is we've talked about creation, and I've got my fancy little laser pointer here, so uh, I'm going to help us through this chart. I think it's really going to help to follow along, right? Um, Okay, this says creation. Uh, I know it's a little small. But we, we started off and we said there are three conditions to the way God created the world and the way it's supposed to be. Those are that we're with God in his presence and that we're together in community and that we're in a perfect place. And then in the next one, in the fall, we lost those conditions. That was the big thing about the fall. We we lost the presence of God in our midst. Now, it wasn't completely taken away, but it's not the same as it was. There was discord between the people, and they were displaced from the garden. And last week, we talked about the, the, the fact that God could have just let that be the end of the story. It would have been perfectly acceptable for that to be the end of the story because we turned away from him. He gave us everything we turned away, but he decided not to do that. He gave us a promise in this next one. The promise came through a man and a woman, out of whom will come a people, so there's going to be community, favored by God, they'll be in God's presence, and in a particular place, uh, promised the land of Canaan. Uh, And so that's kind of where we we left off. Um, The the story was, all was lost, and we wondered what was going to happen next, but now all of a sudden, uh, there's a promise that comes. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we just know there's this hope, Something is going to change in the future. God has not abandoned us. He's coming after us. He's pursuing us out of his great love. We don't know the, we don't know the whole story yet, but we know that God is after us. And so that's where we pick up in this day. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking a little bit about uh, the Exodus this morning. And I want to bring you up to speed on how we got there. So if you go to the next slide, where we left off with Abraham Abraham is in uh, this area over here, and his family's growing, and Lot uh, is over there. And um, you go uh, to Abraham's great-grandson, uh, is, is, uh, uh, is, uh, one of them, is Joseph. And so we'll pick up the story there. And Joseph has 11 brothers. It's the 12 tribes that come out of this family. The father is Jacob. And uh, at one point, you know the story of Joseph... Uh, and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? or the, the, Whatever it was, the, the, the play that was on Joseph. And so Joseph is sold up here by his brothers. They take him away, and they sell him to some Midianites, and they take Joseph, the little younger brother, because uh, he's the favored one, and they're upset that he gets this privileged sort of place in the family. And so the bro- all the other brothers decide to do away with him. They throw him. They're going to kill him first, but then they sell him to the Midianites. And they take, they take these Midianites take Joseph all the way down to Egypt here, and so Joseph ends up, uh, there's a lot more to the story, it's a fascinating story, but he ends up in Egypt. That's the point. And he's just lost everything. It seems like everything is lost. You know, what's going on with the life of Joseph? But he grows in that place to become the second in command in all of Egypt. And the pharaoh elevates him and he, he, he gets all kind of authority and, and he gets this, the insight from God that there's going to be a great famine in the land. He begins to store up uh, all the things that they will need to endure the famine. And so... Uh, over time, Joseph stores all this up, and the famine hits, and his family, which is still back uh, in this area, is hit hard by the famine, and, and, and they need help, and they send brothers down uh, to Egypt, and they realize it's Joseph, and Joseph ends up saving, and he brings the whole family down into Egypt, and it's this wonderful story of how, you know, through these incredible circumstances, God's will is done, and the family's protected, and the promise is held true. The promise to the people of Israel is held true through all these twists and turns, and it's It's an amazing story, and for a number, hundreds of years, the family remains in Egypt, and they grow, and they expand, uh, and the family becomes uh, quite large. We don't know, perhaps up to two million uh, by the time of the Exodus, and so they're in Egypt for these 400 years, but towards the end, a pharaoh rises up who is not so favorable towards Egypt the Israelites, and ends up enslaving them. And so what started off as a wonderful thing ended up as a terrible thing with this, this whole society within a society, these Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt. And that's kind of where we pick up our story. Uh, God, God hears their cries in the midst of slavery. They want to leave Egypt. They want to be freed from the bondage that they're in. And God raises up a man, Moses, who is an interesting man because he has grown up in Pharaoh's household, but he's Jewish, so he's both royalty in a sense, but he's also part of that group of people that have been enslaved. He he kind of bring those brings those two together, and I want to tuck that away for later. Uh, and And Moses uh, is 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 a mediator, and he's raised up. He's going to lead them out, and God speaks to him and works through him, and he he's, he brings the plagues uh, upon. Egypt saying each time, let the people go so they can go out and worship God. And each time the Pharaoh um, refuses to let them go, ultimately. And then we come to the very last plague, which is going to be a curse on the firstborn, that the firstborn of all the families will die, uh, except those who celebrate the Passover and kill the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so that their, their, their families are passed over but all the others, and this is the last plague, and it, and it racks Pharaoh and the whole land. And finally, Pharaoh says, okay, they can go. And he lets the people go. And that's really what Exodus means. It's a way out. It's, it's, it's a way out, way out of bondage and, and slavery. We're looking in Exodus chapter 14, if you would turn there. And I want to read to you this story, this miraculous, incredible way out of the bondage for the people of Israel. If you're using the Bible that we hand out, it's on page 48 that we're going to be looking at. I'm actually going to start a little bit earlier in in chapter 13, verse 17, and I'm basically just going to read the story and then make some comments about it. When the Pharaoh let the people go, this is verse 17 in chapter 13, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now, it wasn't because of God's deficiency that they went through the Philistines. It was because uh, of the people's deficiency. Verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up and out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. It's a kind of a harbinger of God's faithfulness. You might want to tuck that one away as well. Verse 20, And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. So already you've got the fingerprints of God's restoration in His presence with the people again. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the, before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharoth." I had to practice that between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, "They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in." And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God's setting a trap for Pharaoh. The people are wandering around. It seems like they're helpless and hopeless, and they have no possibility of saving themselves. And so it's kind of a trap. Israel's the bait. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? We liked those slaves. It made our lives a lot easier. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took, his, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Piharath in front of Baal-Sephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Something like sarcasm mixed with panic, right? Um, What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. We could spend so much time on this concept. Fear not, stand firm. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Not only do you have to do anything hardly, you don't have to say anything. Verse 15, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. These Egyptians that had enslaved for hundreds of years and and harmed and, and, and kept in bondage, were finally overthrown by the work of God miraculously in and for the people of Israel. And this really begins the next phase of the story of God. This is the opening salvo in what's going to be happening next. And so if we put up the next slide, we can see it says right up here, the Old Testament deliverance, and you can see that better in your handbook. It's in the Exodus, and we're going to spend two weeks on this. And the way that the, the deliverance uh, happens is in uh, this, this uh, incredible uh, movement of God. And in the middle of it, you already see, you have a foretaste of what God is doing with the people of Israel. You have his presence in the pillar and the cloud. So we're seeing the restoration of that all-important condition about the presence of God. You're seeing the community that's coming together in the Passover before they leave. And the fact that this, this nation is being saved together. And you're seeing in the Red Sea, God acting in creation to restore, to begin the process of restoring the perfect place. And it's so interesting to go back and think, in the beginning of Genesis, what was the symbol of chaos? What was, it was when the waters were over the earth, right? And when God separated the waters and the sky, and then he placed land in the middle. That was God's bringing order to create the nest for the people. And here you've got the same notion. And for the Israelites, water was, was a symbol of chaos. And so for God to separate the water was to show his authority over creation and to demonstrate that he, he, it, not all was lost, that this, this garden potential still existed because God is, is God over creation. And then the chaos comes back and the Egyptians are destroyed. And and so in the midst of the deliverance, you already see hints of the promise of God being fulfilled, that the conditions of perfection are going to be restored. But then it's coming through and out the other side of the Red Sea that they catch a glimpse then of what God has in store for them in the future. And, and we'll talk about this more later. But what's going to be happening next is they're going to go into the promised land. They're going to go into the place that God has for him. He's beginning to actually restore the conditions of perfection. Uh, he's going to be in with them in the tabernacle, uh, present with them. Remember, they lost the presence of God. And he's going to establish them as a nation. So this group of people that is a community will be established together and he'll give them the law which is intended to help them be the kind of community that they were always intended to be. So the result is going to be the restoration of the the conditions that God has set out for the people. But I want to say this at the very outset is that the Old Testament deliverance, and we're going to spend two weeks on this, the Old Testament deliverance is going to in the end turn out to be incomplete. It's it's not going to produce the result that the people hoped for, ultimately. And it's not that God messed up in the Old Testament and said, I'm going to save the people, and it it didn't quite work out. And he said, now, scratching his head, what am I going to do? And then we get the New Testament. You already see, there's ample sign already in the Old Testament that God was going to be doing something more spectacular later on that he knew that that the Old Testament deliverance wasn't going to be complete. It's not that he failed. But there's something that God is teaching us in and through the Old Testament deliverance that will prepare us for what's to come in the future, the deliverance in the New Testament. It's like God is providing us with the mental sort of furniture to be able to understand what... it means when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And just like we do oftentimes with kids, we, 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 we go from the physical things that they can understand to teach them about the spiritual things or the, 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 the non-physical things. Just like what the story I told at the very beginning with the luminarios with the kids. We wanted to teach them about God's perspective versus our perspective and so we go through this exercise where they can tangibly experience what it's like to be on the riverbed and confused and not understanding what's going on and then when they're up on top they can see all the pieces put together see we do this all the time and God in working with his people has worked in this way that he taught us in kind of a physical way that will lead into a more spiritual profound understanding into the new testament Jesus told parables about everyday life. And he used those to demonstrate what spiritual things, truths were and how important they were. So we do this all the time. And it's not just me making this connection between uh, what happens here in Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea and what will happen in the New Testament. And we'll explain this more, but just let me share with you some of the hints. In the very beginning of the book of Matthew, um, Matthew connects Jesus' life to this story. He says... Uh, it, from, from Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son, making a reference to this exodus, this way out, and applying it to the life of Jesus. There's a whole connection, a series of connections that have to do with the Passover. Before they were, they were called out of Egypt, they had to celebrate the Passover dinner, and it was the lamb that enabled them to, to be passed over as this, the, the plague of death came on the people of Egypt. And then Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so we've got this association there with a the Passover to Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, um, all this story, this story of the Exodus it says it was written for them I mean, it was an example to them, but it was written for us, the New Testament people, that we might understand, that we might uh, be instructed. And then you've got this amazing. Uh, passage in Luke 9 where Jesus is talking about what he's going to be doing, the, the death and the resurrection, and he literally calls it his exodus. He will be going through his exodus. So you've got all these incredible connections, and then you go through the book of Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews it talks about Jesus being the greater Moses. Uh, and, and so what's going on here is we're being taught through this to be able to be prepared for what happens when Jesus comes. And the story of the life of Christ. Now, there's a lot of incredible truths that we can draw out of this text. Wonderful things that teach us. For example, the glory of God. Um, Several times in this text we heard the reason that God is doing this is to get glory. And even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh started off turning away from God, and and it was first of all, Pharaoh hardened his heart, heart. and then after a while, God confirmed him in his hardness of heart already, and in that, that, he's going to have victory over this this nation that stands against God, and he's going to receive glory from that, and it gives us a sense of the power of God in this text, and it gives us a sense of the trustworthiness of God, the promises that uh, even the bones of Joseph would be taken up out of Egypt and buried in the proper place, and God making good on his promises. So we can talk about all these things, and we could talk talk about um, what it means to to follow Christ and to be still, to be silent, and to let him work. It's a powerful part of this story. But what I want to just spend a few minutes on this morning is the peace that has to do with slavery and being broken from bondage in slavery. Because this is a story that launches us into the rest of the Old Testament deliverance and the New Testament deliverance. Of all the kind of mental furniture that we're given through this story of what God has done, that is of the utmost importance and key. This idea that we're released from bondage. See, turning away from God, what we've seen in the original uh, fall, turning away from God results in, in bondage. Uh, for the Old Testament, for the people of Israel, it resulted in their being in Egypt itself, enslaved in Egypt. And you remember the story of the serpent and the promises that the serpent made, and they felt uh, they, were, they were so much grander than what, ha- than what happened. And, and this is always the case. S- the promise of sin is always much more wonderful than the actual reality of sin. We discover that over and over again. It always lets us down. The, s- the serpent always over-promises and under-delivers. And so these people... Uh, after being on the, the edge of that, they end up in bondage. And, and, and so we've got this, this whole sense of, of bondage. And, and if you fast forward then to the New Testament, it talks about slavery a lot, and now it connects it uh, to the, the spiritual kind of bondage, which is sin. So you've got in the, in, the, in the Exodus story, you've got physical bondage, and then in the New Testament, you've got the spiritual bondage, which is sin. And what's interesting is that it was 400 years before the Deliverer came, to deliver them out of the physical bondage in Egypt. And then at the end of the Old Testament, it was 400 years again before the Deliverer came to deliver them out of the spiritual bondage of sin in the New Testament. she so you got these repeating patterns in this. In order for, for us to enjoy God's plan for us as a people, we need to be released from bondage. In order for us to to take advantage of what God has for us, we have to be released, we have to be broken free from bondage, whether that be in the Old Testament, Egypt, or in the New Testament, the bondage of sin. And I want to draw from this text just three truths of freedom here briefly. These are truths that help us to, to come out of Egypt, in a sense, and to come into the promised land that God has intended for us and the community that goes along with that. The first one is this, and you see this in this text a number of times. The slaveholder is tenacious. The slaveholder is tenacious. Pharaoh won't let go of the people. Over and over again, terrible, horrible, awful things are happening to Egypt, and he refuses to let go of his slaves. And even when the worst plague of all comes and the firstborn of every family in Egypt are killed, including the firstborn in Pharaoh's house, when they're all killed and he finally lets them go, it's only for a moment he changes his mind and he says, "No, let's go after them and bring them back into bondage. There is a tenacity around the slaveholder wanting to keep us in bondage. And what's even more wild to me is that the people after they leave they've been broken free they want to go back. They don't want to be in freedom. They're afraid. They don't recognize their surroundings. They can't see what is around the next corner and they want to go back to Egypt. So the slaveholders drawing them back chasing them and their own internal fear and panic is, is, is pushing them back towards bondage. And this is a truth about the spiritual bondage of sin that we ought to sit with for a second. We're just like that. It's the same for us. There's a spiritual battle going on outside of us, and there's one going on inside of us with respect to sin. This in this world, there is evil, and, and, and it's personal, and, and we refer to the personal evil in this world as Satan, and Satan hates God. That's the nature of Satan. He, and, and because he can't get at God, he wants to get at anything that's like God, and human beings are made in the image of God, so we're, most, we're the next candidates. And so there's a hatred there for human beings made in the image of God. And Satan wants to... Dr- go out after us and to draw us back into bondage and sin and slavery. And it's a force in the world that's active. And we, we don't have to be racked with fear because Jesus has obtained the victory over evil and, the, and the Scripture calls us to resist the devil in Christ and we can have that confidence, but we need to know the reality that Pharaoh is still chasing us to bring us back into bondage. Into slavery. And not only that, internally we are being, we want to go back oftentimes into slavery. Said it this way many times, we prefer a familiar hell to an unfamiliar heaven. We prefer a familiar hell hell to an unfamiliar heaven. It's scary to be broken out of slavery, the bondage of what we know. And, and it, sometimes it's external things, sometimes there's habits that we've, we've, we've uh, accepted and, and they've become a part of us and we, we can use alcohol or drugs or things to, to self-medicate and, and, and so there's kind of this destruction that goes on through that way. Uh, but sometimes it's much more subtle, it's, it's the familiarity of arrogance and pride or bitterness or anger. Or any of the kinds of sins that can rack us, we, we get comfortable in our lives hanging on to those things. I always think of Linus and his blanket, right? Th- these kinds of things become kind of like that for us. We don't want to let them go, even though it's good for us to break free. So we've got this incredible tenacity around slavery, and when we were preaching through the book of Romans we Talking about uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, who wrote a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans, and he has this incredible analogy. He says, Imagine if you were a slave around the time of the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, let's just say you'd spent most of your life living uh, under the, the brutal care of a slaveholder in a particular town, let's just say. And the, the proclamation comes, and now you're free, you're no longer a slave. You've spent your whole life reacting to that person in a particular way. Do you think that the next day when you're walking down the street and you see that person, you are not going to tense up inside? Let's just say that person's been physically abusive to you. When you see that person, you're going to tense up inside. You're going to have the reaction that you've had for years and years and years because even though somebody just said you're free, you probably have a hard time believing it and accepting it and living it out. It's it's a new reality that you haven't fully embraced. And that's true of us, the New Testament talks about, when it comes to the slavery of sin. We're broken free. Jesus Christ has emancipated us from it. But we hang on because we haven't caught up to the freedom yet that we've been given in Christ. This is why we keep going back, and we just did this class again, for example, to class like the Gospel Proficiency Class. What we're trying to do in the Gospel Academy is create a culture where people continually preach and proclaim the gospel, the grace of Christ, into one another's lives. Because we know we have a hard time believing it. We have a hard time believing in the grace of God. And so we want to be a community where we're continually proclaiming that. And this is why home group is so incredibly important. This is where church happens because people actually know your slavery and your bondage. And they speak into it with the gospel. And I'm so encouraged by what I've been seeing going on in the various home groups. And if you're not in a home group yet, we just started three new home groups, and it's been wonderful to see what's going on in those. And I encourage you to get involved in that kind of community because the people of God will come around you, and they will help you to sink deeper and deeper into the grace of God and to experience in a tangible way the freedom that we've been given in Christ. Now it doesn't only just apply to this life; it also applies to the eternal life. I mean, we hang on to it for eternity too. In this life, um, we don't want to give up the controls to God. We don't want. We, we would prefer to be in charge of our lives than to give it up to God and be with Him for all eternity. And so, not only does the gospel affect us today, but affects us for eternity. That if we release to God the authority over our lives, then in Christ we have that presence with God into the future. So the first thing is that the slaveholder is tenacious. The second one is that a mediator in this process of being broken free from sin, the slavery of sin, a mediator is required. We need a Moses. I watched the movie Argo this week. Story of some potential hostages in Iran in the 70s, You know, when there was the hostage crisis, six people escaped and they're hiding out in Iran and they need to be broken free and brought back to the United States. And the CIA says, the best way to do it is to send in a Moses. And you think, well, why do you have to do that? Could you just figure out a plan and they could go out on their own? But then when you get into it, you think about all the challenges with getting these people out of Iran and all the the problems surrounding that. Yeah, you need an expert. You need somebody who knows how to move through the difficulty and bring the people out. And so they send in this CIA expert, and he devises this incredible plan, and they break the people free. And there's at moments the people don't want to go, but the Moses who's there on the ground uh, helps them to get out of the bondage that they're in, the potential uh, hostage situation that they're in. Jesus Christ is our Moses when it comes to the bondage of sin. Just like Moses was sort of from royalty and yet part of the enslaved people at the same time, Jesus Christ is divine and He's human. And He comes on the scene because of that unique place that He has and He's able to take us out of the bondage in which we find ourselves. He's able to turn the slavery around. And I know that for a lot of us, we have a hard time with Christ and submitting to Christ because we have this tremendous sense that we can do this on our own. We want to be broken free from the bondage of sin and we want the spiritual exodus to take place in our lives, but we want to manage it ourselves. We want to do it on our own. And the Gospel calls us reminds us that, no, you need a Moses. You need somebody to go in who knows and is capable of bringing you out. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And so it requires some humbling to submit to Christ, but that's the only way that we know we can be brought out of the bondage of sin that we're in. It's humbling to come to Christ, but it's necessary we need the one who's divine and human, so we need to come to him. And which leads us into the third truth about freedom: crossing over requires faith. So the slaveholders tenacious. We need a mediator, and crossing over requires faith. The sea was parted, and the walls of water are on either side, and. Uh, Tim Keller, when he's talking about this passage, he gives us a great Im- Im- image, image. He's a pastor in, in New York City. He says there's probably a couple types of people who are walking through, right, that parting of the Red Sea. Uh, you probably have the ones who are, are, you know, boasting about it and excited and real confident and they're running through the Red Sea and they're saying, what now, Pharaoh? You know, and 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 making all the gestures that they would make in that day, you know, of victory and triumph, and uh, they're just they're just excited about what God has done. And then at the same time, you probably have the other kind of people walking through who are a little less confident. They're a little panicked, seeing the walls of water on either side, saying to themselves, "Are we going to make it? Is going to close in on us?" I can't believe the walls are standing there. Is this really me? Can I pinch me? What am I doing? Should I turn around? Which way should I go? Is this really happening to me? And they're filled and racked with doubt and fear and they're, they're struggling. And, and I love the point that Keller makes on these. He says, he says, look, did they make it through any less than the others did? And the answer is no. And, and why is that? Because it doesn't depend on the quality of your faith. It depends on the object of your faith. And in this case, the object was, was, was looking towards Moses, guiding them out. But for us, it's looking towards Christ. So Christ is the focus of our faith. And I know that some of us have this great confidence in that. And we've, we walk around knowing to the very core of our being that this is the truth. And, and some of us struggle in that. Some of us are a little bit like that second group. And, and we have doubts and we have questions and, and we're plodding along, and, and, and we're wondering, do I not get it? And, and, and I just want to affirm to us this morning that those kind of doubts and those questions, those are natural and normal, and part of what it means to, to, to grow spiritually, that we explore those, and we give a place for them to be vented, which is the community of faith where we can ask the questions. So important that we do this in home group, where it's not like the answer to every question is Jesus, because we've already preordained that it would be so, and there's no real searching or questioning, but that we, we create an environment where it's okay to ask questions and to wonder and to, and to seek, and the process of faith can unfold. Absolutely critical that we be, we be that kind of a community so that people can grow and we don't have to pretend when we don't understand and believe. Both of those are okay. And sometimes we go through seasons where we're confident, sometimes we go through seasons where there's doubt. But the truth of the matter here that we hang on to is it's not the quality of our faith, it's the object of our faith that gets us through. And the object is Jesus Christ. Now you put all these together, the slaveholder is tenacious, the mediator is required, and the crossing over requires faith. You put them all together and you have a way out of slavery. And I think back, again, uh, thinking of Martin Lloyd-Jones and that whole time of of slavery in this country, and you know the stories of the Underground Railroad where there would be these places where people would be, they would escape from slavery and they would be able to stop and go from one place to the next. And I think that's a wonderful image of what the church is because what we do is we proclaim together, all of us, and in our small communities, we proclaim over and over again these truths. Look, the slaveholder is tenacious. Satan wants to draw you back into the life that you left, and you have a desire part of you to go back into that as well. The slaveholder is tenaciously hanging on. But you have a mediator to bring you out. And you're called to faith in that mediator. And by such a process, you will cross through. And this is what the church is. It's an it's a, it's a underground railroad. And people stop and we, we, we proclaim the gospel again to each other. And your home group is another underground railroad. And you proclaim the gospel to each other. And and, and in doing so, you move deeper and deeper into the freedom that Christ has won. Would you pray with me? God, we know this is just the beginning of the process of our being broken free from bondage. Lead us out individually and collectively. Guide us by Your Spirit. Enable us through Your Word. Remind us through Your community. Call us in our souls. Break us free from the various forms and facets of bondage that continue to hold us down. Focus our eyes on the Mediator, Jesus Christ both divine and human. And fill us with faith that carries us forward. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.